Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Darren Wills, Managing Director, APEC, Head of Fixed Income, iShares and Institutional Index at BlackRock. This conversation covers how investors think about fixed income from an SAA or total portfolio level, whether investors need to be more dynamic in the current market environment, thoughts around tactical investing, particularly in areas such as high yield and emerging markets, factor investing and determining style and exposure characteristics, and finally, how to manage liquidity expectations within a fixed income portfolio. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So let's kick off today uh, talking about the role of fixed income in a portfolio. And maybe let's start with the comparison between how some investors think about fixed income as fitting within an SAA versus a, a TPA or a whole portfolio level approach. Absolutely. Um, so I think the first thing to do is to give some context. So, you know, since the financial crisis and especially over the past few years, you know, we're seeing a evolution in portfolio construction approaches. So, you know, whilst that traditional portfolio construction approach might have typically been, you know, quite binary in nature, whether that's active versus passive, stocks versus bonds, domestic versus international, um, with greater transparency and access to data, um, we increasingly see institutional and wealth managers taking a, a whole portfolio approach um, that focuses on desired outcomes or expected returns for a given level of volatility. Second, followed by then um, how to make an asset allocation decision um, in lieu of those expected outcomes. And then finally, on the most efficient way to implement that strategic asset allocation decision, which may typically include a combination of products, um, whether that be index factor or, or alpha generating vehicles. And really that's driven by an understanding that, you know, the vast majority of historical investment returns are driven by strategic asset allocation um, with only a small proportion um, being explained by individual security selection. When, when you think about why a lot of funds are maybe moved to the whole portfolio level, is it the, the concerns that they may have around the ability of, of fixed income, particularly to provide the t- traditional diversification benefits that they've seen? Is, is that one of the reasons why there's been a bit of an evolution there? Um, I think that, you know, the, the, the what role fixed income has in your portfolio hasn't changed. Um, the expected returns that you might generate from fixed income, as we've seen yields trend lower since the financial crisis might have changed. But the role that bonds can play in a, in a portfolio, we, we, still think, we still think holds. So if you take away the requirement for some institutions to hold bonds for, say, matching liabilities or for meeting regulatory and capital requirements, then we still see three main roles for fixed income um, in a portfolio context. The first one, generating income. Um, and that really depends on your preference for, for yield and risk tolerance. And, you know, within that bucket, corporate bonds, high yield bonds, emerging markets, the high yielding part of that, that fixed income spectrum. Uh, the second real role, capital preservation or providing an incremental yield on cash. Um, so short dated treasuries, short dated top corporates, 
again, depending on your tolerance for, for negative return outcomes. And then the final one, equity diversification. So the traditional reason for holding fixed income in a multi-asset portfolio, protection when stocks sell off. And in that bucket, you know, treasury bonds, inflation-linked bonds, multi-sector fixed income, again, investment-grade corporates kind of fit into that bucket. And look, there's no one-size-fits-all here. There is a sliding scale um, within the fixed income universe of how different um, parts of the asset class fit in within those broad three use cases. I guess with each one of those areas, those particular sectors that you're talking about within fixed income, there is a trade-off between defensiveness, income, and I guess risk is also part of that. You know, how do you, how do you think about that trade-off as you move up the risk spectrum? And a lot of asset owners have been forced to move up the the risk spectrum as they as they look for income. Absolutely. So, you know, it's no surprise that that as yields have fallen globally, um, an expected return expectations you know, have fallen at the same time that investors have been reaching for yield in, in, in their fixed income allocations. Um, the important thing for investors to understand is that they, if they move out of the, out on the risk spectrum in fixed income, from government bonds to IG corporates, from investment grade corporates to high yield, perhaps even then to hybrid capital, then they're taking on increased levels of credit risk. The consequence being that the correlation to equities in these fixed income asset classes increasing. So really, again, to take this back to the whole portfolio conversation and what role fixed income has within that whole portfolio, um, we think the key consideration here is to tailor your bond portfolio to best fit within that overall asset allocation construct. So what do I, what do I mean by that? So I'm just going to think about the two ends of the spectrum. So on the conservative side where you know, you might want a low expected return, low level of risk multi-asset portfolio, you're already likely to have um, a high allocation allocation to bonds. So therefore, within that larger bond allocation, you know, you can have a mix of capital preservation, income generating assets, um, and equity diversification risk buckets. On the flip side to that, on an aggressive or growth multi-asset portfolio, where you're already likely to have, you know, majority equities, stocks, perhaps alternatives, you know, that smaller fixed income allocation should probably be tilted more towards capital preservation and equity diversification risk buckets. So really, there's a paradox here. As your overall portfolio gets riskier, the bonds within it may need to be more conservative. Aggressive portfolios typically need more duration or interest rate risk and higher quality credit to deliver that equity diversification. You mentioned a little bit about duration there, and obviously duration is a key part of the risk that sits within some of these bonds. Given the current market environment that we that we have today, where it gets these real choppy stages, it's quite calm. You know, how do, how should people also think about fixed income from a, a tenure point of view? You know, how long to hold these? What the yeah, you know, what the approach is? I guess different risk uh, classes of, of bonds have different time horizons that investors should be looking at. How, how do you then think about it, given the current market environment as well? So again, back to the whole portfolio conversation, when, when investors think about um, what level of risk they're willing to tolerate, um, a key part of that is going to be over what time period that investment is likely to last. So are you saving for retirement? Are you saving for um, school fees or university fees? You know, what, what is that time period? And therefore, how the fixed income allocation fits in with that, right, is again going to drive your allocation between risk buckets. So if you were coming up to retirement, you may want to consider that more conservative fixed income allocation 
with lower um, probability of taking capital losses in the short term. Um, and if you're looking over long, longer time periods, then you may look at a higher expected return allocation within fixed income. And you can, you can, you know, you have the ability to ride out those periods where you may see capital losses. And that's true both from an equity context and a fixed income context. So your, your level of risk and your time horizon is a key consideration to take into account. You mentioned there a little bit about capital losses versus the income component. Um, and given where we are in, in, in terms of interest rates and yields, um, how do you then think about that trade-off today, particularly as there is a defensive characteristic that we see with government bonds, but they still have quite low, um, low yields? Uh, and so there is that sensitivity or that convexity that you're, you're seeing with these particular types of um, fixed income. You know, how, do you, how does that play into people's thinking? <laughs> Again, it's an interesting question, and and having um, having been in the market for for a number of years, you know, we've been having this same conversation um, since the global financial crisis. So, you know, coming out of the global financial crisis, um, you know, government bond yields had already fallen, albeit not to the levels that we see today. And investors were already having a conversation around the great rotation into equities. You know, fixed income um, is no longer a, a sensible asset class to have in your portfolio. It's not necessarily going to provide that downside protection or that negative correlation to, to the riskier parts of your portfolio or equities. But, you know, as we saw over the previous uh, six months, government bonds again helped cushion the equity market sell-off, albeit less so um, than in the past with, you know, some yields in, 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 in global government bond markets near what we'd refer to as their, as their effective lower bounds. You know, but broadly speaking, government bonds and diversified um, fixed income exposures, such as um, composite bond or global aggregate, um, did their job again. You know, they protected on the downside through the volatility that we saw in March. And actually, year to date, they're still exhibiting positive returns. You know, you compare that to some of the, the, the higher risk or those parts of the fixed income market where investors may have been reaching um, over the past few years to add yield to their portfolio. So whether that's hybrid capital, whether that's income funds, whether that's high yield bonds, um, you know, they were far more correlated to equities in the, in, in the recent period um, and saw, you know, substantial capital losses um, over that period. There has now been a recovery, but if you look at high yield, if you look at uh, income funds, far less so than what we've seen in, in in kind of your traditional your traditional bond categories. Just continuing that point for one more moment, you know how how do you think around the trade off between maybe looking for shorter duration government bonds or corporate bonds vis a vis being more tactical, you know, rather than being the strategic allocation given where low rates are that that uh, investors think about these. Uh, types of types of bonds more in a, in a tactical approach. Um, I know it's it's commonly used in the high yield and emerging market space, but how would you think about it as as in terms of government bonds as well? When we look at um, government bonds, and again think about how to find that that equity diversification in a in a, in a post COVID world, clearly the the current environment challenges that role of government bonds as portfolio ballast um, with interest rates near that perceived lower bound. We think there's probably a case to be more deliberate in government bond allocations with perhaps an increased focus on geographical diversification. 
So what do I mean by that? Typically, again, you know, there was that choice between shall I go domestic, shall I go international? Rather, we think that, you know, the case should be made about being more deliberate about which particular government bond markets investors might be interested in. Um, so, for example, perhaps a preference for, you know, slightly higher yielding U.S. treasuries versus perhaps government bond curves, which are already um, at negative rates, such as Japan or Europe. And also um, thinking about, you know, other opportunities that, 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 that new markets opening up to investors might give. So, for example, we're seeing increased interest in, in parts of the market like Chinese government bonds, which have a higher yield than other similarly rated developed market bonds, as well as the lower duration that you talked about, which gives them a higher expected return develop, uh, relative to, to developed market counterparts. Um, and also, they've displayed a, a historically lower volatility and a lower correlation with, with developed market bonds. Mm-hmm. One particular area you didn't touch on is TIPS. Um, and given the, I guess, the outlook for inflation or the perceived idea that inflation will return, that, that's a big area in the U.S. market. What's your thoughts about that as, as a, a key part of the role of fixed income today? It's certainly a consideration. And um, from our perspective, we do see an increased role for um, inflation-protected securities um, in portfolios. You know, that's really a consequence of the policy revolution that we've seen in, in, in global markets around the world, you know, and that likelihood of, 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 of potentially higher inflation in the media term, in the medium term, with central banks around the world willing to tolerate higher inflation. Um, you know, that impetus could come from a number of different areas. Um, so structurally easier monetary policy and the unprecedented fiscal um, expansion that we've seen. The buildup of debt to pay for various fiscal pa- uh, packages around the world, you know, perhaps means that it's p- politically less palatable for for economies to reintroduce austerity measures, um, and rather, you know, um, you know, governments and, and central banks may look to inflate their way out of debt rather than rather than reintroduce those austerity message, uh, 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 measures. You know, the second part to that is really what impact COVID has had on, you know, the, the, the global disinflationary environment that we've seen since the financial crisis. You know, whether that's the advent of technology and whether that's the theme towards outsourcing in terms of being deflationary pressures. You know, what has COVID done in terms of potentially countries looking to move supply chains back onshore? Um, to make sure they have greater supply over that. And, you know, we see the examples of, of countries struggling for personal protective equipment. You know, is that pat- palatable for citizens going forward? And the second um, thing to consider is, you know, does the current situation simply mean that things are going to cost more going forward? So thinking about the additional mes- measures that that companies and societies are having to put in place in restaurants or bars or transportation or in factories with social distancing you know what impact does that have on on the level of pricing we're going forward so we certainly see a role for for inflation versus nominals going forward yeah absolutely one of the things you talked a little bit about was around um, the link between some parts of the fixed income markets and equities um, particularly things like high yield and emerging market style uh, fixed income etfs is another example you know, how do you think about maybe being more tactical? And, and are you seeing maybe investors being more tactical as they look at these more higher risk areas, uh, you know, in terms of their portfolio? I think the answer to this is, you know, when you see 
bouts of volatility like we saw throughout the start of the year. You know, the investment landscape changed in a matter of months. And it's the type of event that, that really underscores the importance of a portfolio construction approach that incorporates in, in uncertainty in estimating asset returns of, you know, rather than a traditional over-reliance on kind of point estimates, which you then don't change for an increased period of time. So that really changes your strategic asset view, which is typically a slower moving process. But when you see dislocations like we've seen before, you know, we need to more reflect an environment where capturing opportunities brought about by substantial swings in valuations and asset prices, you know, might warrant sizable reallocations in a short amount of time. So again, thinking about how that, how that view may have evolved over the course of the year, you know, when we saw the dislocation coming through in, in March, April time, risk assets sold off considerably, whether that was in equities or, or fixed income markets. And at that time, you know, we would have advocated um, investors perhaps shift into higher risk parts of the fixed income spectrum, such as high yield, such as investment grade credit, to take advantage of those dislocations where the view was that investors were being more than compensated for the potential level of downgrades and defaults that we would see actually materialize going forward. Mm-hmm. You know, when you, when you think about these markets, typically they're, they're obviously not a homogenous group. Um, you know, how do you think about looking at these more higher risk places from a passive or active decision? I mean, I, you know, I've, I've managed fixed income for a number of years on both, on both the active and, and, the, and the index side, as we'd refer to it. And I, I tend to think that this whole active versus passive binary argument is a bit outdated. I think in, in fixed income, similar to what we've seen in, in equities, index vehicles have been proven to provide competitive performance across all parts of the fixed income market. And actually, if you look at um, you know, some of the major peer groups or the major categories, especially over the long term, then index portfolios have seen first, second quartile performance. Um, so this perception that there are certain asset classes where you should go active and certain asset classes where you should go index, I just think it's a bit old, right? Really, it comes down to um, the fact that index vehicles provide competitive returns. So I would say that index vehicles are viable investment strategies in all parts of the fixed income market. That's not to take away from the fact that there are alpha opportunities in those same parts of the fixed income market. The real question is, is as an investor, um, you know, what is your ability to research and select one of those managers that can provide you with that alpha or those excess returns, um, you know, for an appropriate cost? And the second thing is, is, is similar to what we saw in, in equities. I think one of the things that greater data and transparency has given us is the realization that actually excess returns that may have been generated by fixed income managers historically can perhaps be replicated through, um, through a building block approach. So using a combination of, of building blocks that index funds can now provide to actually deliver those excess returns or those structural, structural factor tilts. So again, you know, for me, this is not a, you should go active, you should go passive. It's that index funds can provide competitive performance. Um, and if you have the abilities to select a, a, an active manager who can provide you 
excess returns for an appropriate level of risk and cost, then then that's great as well. You mentioned there a little bit about factors, and and we we know that factor investing it can be a very significant way of of capturing those same returns. I think ninety percent of of returns can be driven by three or four factors. You know, how do you think about then that component? You know, how do you determine the style and exposure characteristics um, as part of a a fixed income? You know, even a, a passive vehicle effectively. Um, how, how do you go about that, or how how should an investor go about that? I think, um, and again, the, the 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 idea of factors in in fixed income, we should probably just take a step back and explain why that may be different to to um, investors' perception of, of factors um, in equity. So, what do we mean by fixed income factors? So, academic research has identified a number of factors that persist in fixed income markets, and I'm going to divide these into two categories. One being macro factors and one being style factors, which we recognize from from the equity um, construction. So, you know, BlackRock's research suggests that macro factors, as you um, just indicated, you know, explain approximately 90% of the return across fixed income asset classes. So over the long run, investors bearing exposure to these factors um, are expected to be paid a premium because they're taking on a degree of risk. Um, and these are risks that can't be diversified away by simply increasing the breadth of a portfolio. So in general, macro factors help explain um, the vast majority of fixed income returns when compared to style factors. So what do I mean by those factors? Factors such as real rates, so the reward for taking on exposure to interest rates, um, inflation, uh, credit. As we discussed before, the potential reward for taking on the risk of issuer default or spread widening um liquidity and also sovereign risk um so the potential reward for taking on the risk of a government issuer um defaulting or 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 spread widening in that um in that asset class right so that explains 90 percent of the returns then we move on to style factors in fixed income um style factors in fixed income are those factors which we believe explain for example why one yield why one a corporate bond may outperform another within a fixed income asset class. Um, it's a rapidly evolving area of study in fixed income, and there's still you know, many differing opinions on the number um, and definitions of style factors. Um, but broadly, we, you know, we'd see the, the, there being four fixed income style factors that we believe are most relevant for investors to consider. One is value. Cheap bonds have tended to ex- outperform expensive bonds. Uh, momentum similar in equity space, but actually in fixed income space, uh, because effectively there's an upper bound that's capped by the risk-free rate. Um, bonds with strong recent performance may maintain or actually reverse high returns depending on where they lie on the credit risk spectrum. Um, and then lower volatility and quality similar similar in equity space. But again, you know, actually, uh, we get a lot of questions from fixed income investors saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing factor investing in equities. How do I do factor investing in fixed income? And perhaps they don't realize that actually they are already um, doing factor investing in fixed income. It's just on the macro factor side rather than style factors. Well, yeah, it's, in, it's implicit within within the, the pool of, of assets that they're holding. I guess the question that sort of comes up as you think about factors you know, how easy is it to think about factor investing in some of the maybe more nuanced parts of the market, like the high yield where you you might not have enough 
um, data points to actually get that understanding? Um, you know, do you see a bit of a trade-off there in terms of factor investing, maybe not being advanced enough because there isn't enough data points or enough securities to be, be able to, to trade? I think I'll just, you know, mention again that, that I think investors understand uh, macro factors in fixed income. So that trade-off um, between investing in high yield and taking on that additional credit or equity risk um, versus investing in government bonds where your driver of return is, is more interest rate risk versus emerging markets where it's actually sovereign risk. Um, so I think that that's, that's already understood to a degree. Um, as I mentioned, in terms of the the uh, the potential again excess returns that are driven by style factors within asset classes, and that can in, that can include um, high yield. Um, I think you know what we would currently see is that there are um, excess returns that can potentially be harvested by targeting style factors within fixed income, but they're probably less important and have a low ability to drive dispersion of returns than we're seeing in, in equity space. And again, that, that, that really is a factor of, you know, equities being more driven by idiosyncratic factors, so company-specific factors, whereas even once you step into high yield, a significant proportion of those returns will be driven by macro factor risk rather than idiosyncratic factors. Mm-hmm. One, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about around, particularly on the passive side and the ETF space, is that we see a lot of data available about flow and, and flow data into particular um, strategies and so forth. How do you see that influencing returns? Do you see any relationship between returns and performance there um, as, as money goes in and out? Um, we don't. So we haven't seen any evidence that actually it's the flow um, into into or out of ETFs that driving um, performance of a particular asset class within fixed income. It's really the um, you know the, the the prices of ETFs or or index portfolios are simply reflecting underlying market conditions. Um, you know, again, it goes back to really that the ETF is, is, is transparent in nature. Um, so the ETF structure in itself allows you to see, um, you know, on a live basis where pricing is, 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 being, is being seen in underlying fixed income markets and where risk is being transferred. And you can see the flows on a very um, up-to-date basis. Um, but actually, if you look at um, what's actually driving um, asset pricing, then fixed income ETF flows are still a relatively small proportion of the overall fixed income markets. We estimate about, you know, 1% of the overall fixed income markets, you know, so fixed income ETFs being a, at the moment, a 1.3 trillion industry versus a underlying bond market that is, you know, well over 100 trillion in size. Um, and actually, you know, similar to what we saw during the, the recent volatility, you know, once the um, flow data starts coming through from um, other index products, um, so traditional index mutual funds, active mutual funds, and actually what we see as an organization happening on, on segregated um, investor portfolios, then those flows more, um, you know, really dwarfed what was happening in, in ETF space. So definitely an indication of where, of where money is going. Are they a driver of underlying um, asset pricing? I would say no. Keeping on the liquidity piece of the conversation, you know, how often do you see um, investors utilizing maybe more the ETF style approach to to fixed income as part of a liquidity sleeve? 
um, you know, so they can invest in in fixed income, but the ETF provides them the liquidity that they need um, as part of what they see the the role of fixed income is in their portfolio. Yeah, it's 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 as you rightly say, it's one of the um, more common use cases we see for fixed income ETFs on a on a whole, whole portfolio context, which is you know to use ETFs as a liquidity sleeve. But what do I mean by that? So building a sleeve of ETFs, and this is actually true across both equities and fixed income, that essentially serves to um, match the overall strategic asset allocation um, that the investor is targeting. Um, but should you need to change that asset allocation, so to take advantage of market dislocations, or if your strategic asset allocation view changes, then the additional liquidity that fixed income ETFs can provide over and above what might be available in underlying bond markets, you know, does potentially allow investors to be more nimble in, in changing those allocations and taking advantage of tactical opportunities. So again, thinking back to those, you know, asset allocation changes that we might have seen in the in the volatility through through February, March, April time, you know, really having a liquidity sleeve from a portfolio context was really important for investors in being able to either de-risk their portfolios if they needed to, or actually take advantage of of tactical opportunities that 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 market dislocation offered. You know, one of the things that we would have seen on a historical basis would be investors having to potentially hold cash or some kind of liquid short dated government bonds to fund, you know, that that liquidity aspect of their portfolio. So potentially just in case they were seeing redemptions um, or to manage cash flows in and out of portfolios. And what ETFs have allowed investors to do is not incur that cash drag by by um, by holding cash versus their strategic asset allocation, you know, by holding that 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 liquidity sleeve of fixed income ETFs. Mm-hmm. Final question and, and connects up to to the tactical changes that you talked about, you know, particularly in, in some of the maybe more volatile parts of the market, again, high yield and, and ETF. Do you see investors looking to short these parts of the market? So the ETF maybe in the fixed income market around high yield and emerging markets? Is that something that's also being becoming or becoming more prevalent? Absolutely. So, you know, ETFs can definitely be used alongside um, other derivatives such as futures, total return swaps, CDS indices in terms of of taking tactical views on 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 parts of the market, so there definitely is. If you look at you know the larger, more liquid ETFs, fixed income ETFs that are out there globally, um, you know there is an active borrow market for investors. Um, so you know that works that works in a, a number of different ways. So from a market maker's perspective, it helps um, them provide liquidity as they can potentially borrow. Um, borrow the ETF to fulfill client orders, but also for, I guess, more sophisticated investors, then there is the opportunity to borrow ETFs to actually short a, a respective market. Um, on the flip side of that, for your, for your fully funded investor, you know, that also creates an opportunity on the other side of that. So the demand for borrow on the ETF security itself uh, can mean that the investors who can put their ETFs into lending programs can generate incremental revenue, which can at times, you know, more than offset the management fee that the or the or the or the total expense ratio that's that's charged within that the ETF structure. I would say more commonly, um, and we just touched on this point in our in our discussion around liquidity sleeve, most investors being being fully funded in nature, 
um, will use ETFs more, you know, so they'll have an allocation to a part of the fixed income market. And then within that allocation, they may use an, an ETF to actually reduce their exposure by, by selling the long position or increase their exposure by, by building an additional long position rather than actually, you know, physically shorting the ETF itself. But, but it does happen. Mm-hmm. All right. That's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Darren. Thank you. And thanks for inviting me again. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.